This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, January 24th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Well, Washington feels pretty dysfunctional right now, with government funding jammed up for 33 days. And still, Democrats won't offer Trump any wall funding. So how did Washington actually get this way? And how did the Democratic Party move so far left? Today, former Congressman Bob McEwen comments on those questions and more. But first, we'll cover a few of the top headlines. Thanks, but no thanks. That's essentially President Trump's response to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's request that he delay his State of the Union address because of the shutdown. In a letter Wednesday, Trump wrote to Pelosi, It would be so very sad for our country if the State of the Union were not delivered on time, on schedule, and very importantly, on location. But shortly thereafter, Pelosi responded and said there would be no State of the Union in the House until the government reopened. Well, President Trump had some thoughts about Pelosi's decision. State of the Union speech has been uh, canceled by Nancy Pelosi because she doesn't want to hear the truth. She doesn't want the American public to hear what's going on. And she's afraid of the truth. And the super left Democrats, the radical Democrats, what's going on in that party is shocking. So what's going to happen? Well, Trump reportedly said, quote, we'll do something in the alternative. So I think that means the State of the Union is still on. I can't wait to see what he does. Well, the Senate is moving closer to a government funding solution. Senate leaders agreed to vote on two funding bills this week, one which includes wall funding and one which doesn't. That's a key development because President Trump opposes the bill with no wall funding And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had said that he wouldn't bring any bill up for a vote that couldn't pass the president's desk. We'll see where both bills go. The White House has renominated 51 people as judicial nominees after the Senate failed to get them through last year. Senate Judiciary Chairman Senator Lindsey Graham called the nominees impressive in a statement and said the committee will immediately begin working on these important nominations and trying to confirm as many as possible as soon as possible. There are currently 164 judicial vacancies, according to Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network. Well, a number of far-left Democrats have landed a seat on the powerful House Oversight and Reform Committee. Among them are Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, who once used a profanity in calling to impeach President Trump. The Oversight Committee investigates allegations of fraud and abuse within the federal government, And this Congress, it's expected to go after President Trump's tax returns and other financial records. On the Republican side are several members of the conservative Freedom Caucus, including the ranking Republican Jim Jordan, who co-founded the Freedom Caucus. So brace yourselves for some interesting fireworks in this committee. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee is resigning her role as chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. The Texas Democrat has been under fire after a lawsuit from an anonymous former aide who worked at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation and who says she was sexually assaulted by her supervisor there when she was an intern. The aide claims that once she told Jackson Lee's office she intended to pursue legal action, she lost her job, which was then working for Jackson Lee. Jackson Lee denies wrongdoing, and her office issued a statement saying the congresswoman is confident that once all of the facts come to light, her office will be exonerated of any retaliatory or otherwise improper conduct, and this matter will be put to rest. Well, the Covington Catholic students who were at the epicenter of a media frenzy 
must be exhausted at this point. The high schoolers faced a wave of backlash after a carefully clipped video was posted on Twitter of an apparent altercation that they had with a Native American activist who was banging a drum and chanting. The boys were excoriated, but then exonerated, as subsequent videos showed that they were approached by the man with a drum and that no real altercation took place. One boy stood at the heart of the controversy, Nick Sandman. He went public in an interview with Savannah Guthrie on NBC's Today Show, which aired on Wednesday. Here's what he said. I feel from this experience that you owe anybody an apology. Do you see your own fault in any way? As far as standing there, I had every right to do so. I don't... I. My position is that I was not disrespectful to Mr. Phillips. I respect him. I'd like to talk to him. I mean, in hindsight, I wish we could have walked away and avoided the whole thing. On the anniversary of Roe v. Wade Tuesday, New York State decided to legalize abortions even more, making them legal up to 24 weeks. And if the mother's health or the unborn baby's health is cited as an issue, well, they're legal anytime up to birth. National Review's Katie Yoder noted that even before the laws were made more liberal on abortion in New York, the state had no shortage of abortions performed. Around a third of pregnancies in New York City end in abortion. Well, for months, Venezuela has teetered on the edge of economic collapse. Now, a U.S.-backed opposition leader in Venezuela is looking to shake things up. Juan Guaido, who is president of the Venezuela National Assembly, declared himself head of state on Wednesday, and President Trump immediately recognized him as interim president. In a statement, the president said, quote, The people of Venezuela have courageously spoken out against Maduro and his regime and demanded freedom and the rule of law, end quote. He also said the National Assembly had declared Maduro illegitimate and that that means the office of president was vacant. Maduro responded to Trump by cutting off all diplomatic ties with the United States, giving American diplomats 72 hours to leave the country. Venezuelans have been taking to the streets in the largest numbers since 2017, calling for Maduro to step down. Maduro retained office in the 2018 election, which was widely accused of being rigged. Next up, Rob and Rachel will talk to a former lawmaker. Did you know you can now listen to all of our events through SoundCloud or just by visiting our events page on heritage.org? You now have access to hundreds of events and compelling discussions on policy issues from your car, on the train, or the comfort of your own home. Visit heritage.org events for more information or search for the Heritage Foundation on SoundCloud. We're joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Bob McEwen, Executive Director of the Council for National Policy. He previously represented Ohio's 6th Congressional District in the U.S. House for six terms. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be with you both. Well, we just marked the midpoint of President Trump's first term. How would you rate the president's performance so far? Well, the president uh, was not knowledgeable as a politician, and so he didn't know that you can't do things. And so he just said, uh, all right, we don't sell oil abroad. Well, that's kind of silly. Uh, We have the largest oil reserves in the world. I think we should start doing that. And so we haven't sold a drop of oil since March of 1975 until last year when he said, let's start doing it. We're we're the second largest producer of oil on the planet. And this year we'll be number one. We can continue on and on. Uh, People say you have to negotiate. uh, Well, let's talk about North Korea. Uh, The 
people that were interviewed during the summit in Saigon said, you know, these take at least two and a half to three years of preparation for a meeting like this. He doesn't understand. He just said he'd meet next month. And so you ask me how he's doing. He has accomplished more in the last 23 months than most presidents accomplish in eight years if they're there. A final example would be that uh, the European Union, that never does anything in less than a decade, charges 22% on every American car that's sold in the European Union. The president sent him a note, said, by the way, if 22 is a good point, uh, a good uh, price to pay for, to sell in, in Europe, we'll do the same thing here. 22% tariff on any European cars that are sold in America. The EU met an emergency session. They dropped the, the uh, tariff on American cars in the European Union to zero. And on December 5th, they came in and met and pleaded with him to, to not impose the the tariff on the, the cars, and he delayed it for a bit. He didn't accept their offer because he knows that the second he drops to zero on cars, then they'll be ornery about medical supplies and other things. So ask me how he's doing. This guy does more in a week than most politicians do in a career. Bob, thanks for that answer. You mentioned so many accomplishments right there. But I have to ask, does one stand out in your mind that conservatives in particular should be proud of? Well, everything rises and falls on economics. Uh, if you're poor, let's do the, the strengths of a nation. The strength of a nation come in four categories. First of all, economic, political, military, and leadership. All four of those are essential. And so some have one. Britain or uh, Russia has a strong military. Economically, it's the same GDP as the state of New York, and it is a gas station. It doesn't sell uh, refrigerators or automobiles or, or hair dryers. It sells oil and gas, just like a gas station. So, so economically, it's nothing of, of significance. Politically, it's even worse. So the strength is all four. So, so in, in his case, he strengthened the economy of America. America that we were told you had to learn with, to live with less, wear your sweater, ride your bicycle. America is going to either blow up or burn up within the next decade anyway. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. After all, is the, the, the Zion of the Democrat Party said, what's he going to do, wave a magic wand? No, it's not that complicated, Yehu. All you have to do is not steal from people's pockets. And so when they lowered the taxes on savings, investment, productivity, and growth— First of all, the tax on foreign investment, there's three and a half trillion, three and a half trillion dollars abroad. Over a trillion of that has come back because of the changes in the tax law. When you, when you invest in something, uh, if, you, if I spend money for, for uh, a new glass or, or a, a, something small, the cost of uh, staying in a hotel, a business can deduct all of that. But if you invest in something of significance that will reproduce over time in America, unlike every other nation on the earth, you weren't allowed to deduct it. You had to deduct it over 14 years. And when Reagan was in office, we were proud of the fact we dropped it from 14 to deduct it to seven years. The pipe dream, the greatest fantasy would be if you bought something, you could deduct it immediately. Well, that's, that's called expensing. It's part of the tax bill such that last December, it, orders for new cabs for trucks on the highway increased 100% over the year previous. Why? Because people can now invest and get new capital equipment, which increases productivity, which increases the standard of living, which increases taxes for the country. So uh, if I were to, to look at the best things that he has done, there's a lot of them, but the tax bill has to certainly be up there. I have to agree. I've talked to a lot of uh, folks from across the country, and they have mentioned that expensing part of it that they've really appreciated and has been able to grow their business. So, Bob, you were elected to Congress at the age of 30. Today, there's much more talk about another newly elected congresswoman. She's not quite 30 yet, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
What do you think of the influence she's already having on the Democrat Party? And 74 74% of Democrats say that they would consider even supporting her for president. Well, she is the future of the Democrat Party, as the chairman said about her. Uh, it used to be that both Democrats and Republicans cared about the standard of living and the quality of life of people. The Democrat Party has long since abandoned that. They care about race and religion and gender. Now, uh, beyond that, you're of inconsequence, such that Ohio, the Mahoning Valley, uh, Cleveland, areas that uh, have never gone Republican in the history of with over 100 years. They, they not only went Republican, by two to one, they voted for Trump. Now, who are they? These are people who are, are ethnic immigrants at the turn of the century, the Czechs, the Hungarians, the, the Polish, the others, that are, are Catholic, are unionized, are liberal, and Democrat. They have been for generations and generations and generations. But the Democrat Party has abandoned them, has no interest in them, unless you can talk about your race or unless you can talk about your gender, then they don't care about you. And so this gal comes in, she's 27 years old, and says that sh- that uh, they shouldn't ha- there should never be a billionaire in the country as long as somebody has ringworm in Mississippi. Now, if you're a 27-year-old and you've been fed liberalism, that sentence probably makes sense. But if you understand economics, you understand how absurd. The difficulty is with the Democrat Party is that they and many others do not know how wealth is created. They don't know why that person is a billionaire. They don't know how a person becomes rich. And so Republicans, and used to be all Americans, certainly farmers understood, that the way you become rich is that you have to do something for someone else, such that they reach in their pocket and they give it to you and say, you're going to wash my car and sweep out the carpeting and wash the windows and wipe off the dashboard. I would much rather have that than have this $10 bill. In free enterprise, the more you do for someone, the wealthier you become, such that when you look around who invented the airplane and the light bulb and the telegraph and the global positioning system and the internet and the elevator and the air conditioner, the list goes on. Americans, why? Because we're smarter? No, because we're freer. And people understood, as Willis Carrier said, if I invent an air conditioner so that the people living in Saudi Arabia can air condition their homes, I can become rich. And Bill Gates said all of these people, all of these nerds walking around with these pencil cards in their pockets and only one person in 10,000 knows how to operate a computer. If I can make a system whereby little two-year-olds can point on on an icon and make it work, I could become wealthy and becomes the richest man in the world. The list goes on and on. The reason we have rich people in America in a free enterprise system is because you help people. And the Democrat Party, represented by the, the newest spokesman for their party, says we don't like People who have become successful in America, we want it to be like the socialist countries in the rest of the world where people are always poor. Well, Bob, I want to stick with Congress for a moment because you as a congressman were known for having a conservative voting record, yet you also played a key role in several negotiations and getting things done. Now we have a government shutdown where it seems that the two parties are unable to come together. I want to also ask your advice for conservative lawmakers today, how should they go about approaching their role, particularly in the House, now that they're in the minority? Well, I have to say this gently because it's my perspective at the time. But it appears to me that there doesn't seem to be the enthusiasm for bringing the solutions that the American people want to Congress. As you mentioned, in my experience with Jack Kemp and and uh, uh, Jim Vin Weber and some David, well, many of us that sought to bring new ideas to the Congress, we had to fight an uphill battle. Uh, we we didn't even dream of the day that we would control every bill that came to the floor, chair every committee, be able to decide to bring up anything we wanted. I was on the Rules Committee. There's only four Republicans there, 
And so we would have to fight to even get one amendment if we could, and we battled all the time. But the idea that you could control the entire agenda wouldn't pass all the things that we ever dreamed about, and yet they don't even meet. They sleep on the floor of their offices, and they go home for five and six weeks at a throw is so <laughs> a little bit distressing to those of us who fought to get this moment. So in answer to your question, what do we do now that they're in the minority? Well, they need to figure out that the American people know what they want. They're looking around. They know the Democrat Party doesn't have it. They know the socialists obviously would kill it. It's time for the Republican Party to identify what they want to say. We will do it. So that don't go around and cut commercials about saying how you're going to build a wall. You could build a wall tomorrow if you wanted to. All you have to do is just pass the bill and do it. The president will sign it. And so that's the that's a little bit of the frustration. And another thing is that when Ronald Reagan was president and uh, – he, he would watch carefully if the Congress went out of session and they refused to uh, work, work on his appointments. He had the capacity to make a what, what was, was called an interim as, uh, appointment, the, the recess, appointment. recess appointment. And so uh, the, the Democrat leadership said, we're not going to do that, brother. We're going to come in. Every, you, have to, you can't adjourn for more than three days. So every three days we're going to come in there. We're going to meet for a minute and a half. So we make sure that Ronald Reagan doesn't get his people in there. Well, <laughs> When last fall or this spring, when we controlled the House and the Senate, all they had to do was adjourn. Donald Trump could have appointed everybody. They'd be in office. You can only make a, a recess appointment for, for two years, by the way, and until the end of, of the next session of the Congress. So he could have appointed them all. They served for two years. We could have been off and running. And who didn't do that? Mr. Ryan didn't do that. Mr. McConnell didn't do that. And uh, not that I care at all. <laughs> you you are somebody who always who always uh, tried to leverage communication in a way that you know conveyed a message of conservatism to the American people. Um, C-SPAN, for instance, when Republicans had the opportunity to take the floor and talk directly to the American people, I also feel that we live in a time when we're not leveraging all of those channels. I mean, the president himself is using Twitter, but it seems that. You talked about the benefits of the tax bill, for instance, and it seems that Republicans largely ran away from that issue in the last election. So there are so many things that I think we can desire and we're just not seeing. Robert, there's only two reasons people run for office. Only two. I'll say it again. There are only two reasons people run for office. One is to be somebody. I want to be sheriff. I want to be mayor. I want to be governor. And the other is to do something. I want it such that instead of these peep holes in downtown uh, Times Square, I want to be mayor of New York so the woman can walk down the street 11 o'clock at night and be unmolested in one of the safest cities in America. My name's Rudy Giuliani. I want to be your mayor. The reason you either run because you want to be somebody or because you want to do something, and everybody is a combination of those two. They're either 80-20 or 50-50 or 30-70. The people who want to do something, they care about this. The people who just want to be there, Let's take a recess. Let's don't take a vote. Let's don't upset anybody. Let's take off. And let, I, mean, I, I, I was telling last year, I said, we're clear back in, after the Easter break. I said, if these guys, you understand, they're going to come back. They're going to take off two weeks for Memorial Day in May. And then there'll be a week and a half in June. And there'll be the 4th of July recess. And then out for August, it'll be September. And now you're, you're into the election time in October. And we will have absolutely, if they do not meet. So they just wanted to win so they could be there to do what? To run again. And that's what we have to be very careful about, why people serve. We're currently in the longest government shutdown in history. What is your advice for the way forward as the Senate plans to vote on Thursday on a package that might end the shutdown? 
Well, all of the talk is about how the fact that the Senate has to have 60 votes. Now, that's not in the Constitution any place. In fact, it was designed to not be that way. What happened was that the rules said in the Senate, we're going to allow people to talk all they want to. And the only way you can shut them up is if you get 60 votes to say, shut up. But uh, short of that, they're going to talk. Well, what Mr. McConnell and some of the others have done recently is that they let a staff member call down to the office and say, oh, by the way, if you bring this bill up, my boss is going to talk for a long time. Oh, really? Well, in that case, we'll recess for a month because we certainly can't do anything about that. Mr. McConnell, what a leader does, and let me tell you what a leader is. A leader is a person who knows what needs to be done next, knows why it's important, and can bring together the resources necessary to accomplish the task, usually people. Let me say it again. We had a recent president said, I'm the decider. I'm the, anybody can decide. You can flip a coin and decide. A monkey can decide. You not only need to know what to do, you need to know why. Why? Now, Mr. McConnell needs to understand that if these people claim that they want six, that they're going to have a filibuster, then get your little tail to the floor. We're going to sit and watch. We've got C-SPAN. I can put my feet up on my desk and put my pillow behind my head, and I can watch you talk until eventually you're going to have to go to the bathroom or someplace, and then we're going to have a vote. So the idea that we can't do anything unless we have these 60 votes is absurd. We could, we could open this thing up tomorrow. Well, we could, we could open up by this time next week if the leadership of the Congress cho- chose to do so. Bob, thanks for that answer. You know, we're, uh, again, our, for our listeners, we're talking to Bob McEwen, Executive Director of the Council for National Policy. I want to talk about CNP for a moment, give our listeners an opportunity to hear about the work that you're doing. Uh, the organization has a great history dating back to the early 1980s and the Reagan era and uh, and operates in a unique way of bringing together different people who really care passionately about the issues that animate the conservative movement. So share with our listeners about uh, the organization. Well, one of the things that I use to get people's attention is I say that the CNP doesn't do anything. And uh, what the Council for National Policy does, it does not compete with anyone. But there are lots of good right-to-life groups, for example. There are lots of good farm groups. There are lots of good conservative organizations. There are several groups that believe in, in the right to bear arms. But there's no one that has the capacity to get all five or six of them in a room and say, now, look, this bill's going to help all of us. We need to work together as a team. And so at the start of the Reagan administration in 1981, uh, some of the uh, members of his finance committee, and, and by the way, we meet three times a year, and my wife and I joined the third meeting. And, and what we do is that we bring together the leaders of the conservative movement, whether they be individuals or the leaders of organizations in town in Washington, D.C., and when, when we work for the cause of advancing folks together. So I can say to, to Grover Norquist, whose life is dedicated to, to, to restoring tax reform, I, I can say, Grover... I know that your number one concern is not who's on the Supreme Court, but that means a lot to the National Rifle Association, and you'd love to have the millions of members of the National Rifle Association help your tax bill come next November. How about if we can help help them on this Neil Gorsuch consideration? And that's what CMP does. And uh, my wife once said, if you designed a job for Bob McEwen, this would be it. So (laughs) I enjoy working with conservatives and Americans to make America stronger. And we certainly appreciate it. We do. Bob, fighting communism and socialist policies was one of the main reasons that you got involved in politics yourself. Does it trouble you today that Democrats and young people especially are more positive about socialism than capitalism? Well, you know, I, I, Charlie Kirk is head of Turning Point and a member of CMP. And, and he was recently, we were discussing the fact he said that naturally uh, they're programmed as the left is. And let, let me just take a diversion here for a second and, and point out that truth overcomes error. 
truth reveals error. So uh, if if um, if I'm preach, preaching error, truth will destroy it. If you're telling the truth, you don't care. You can let me a quick example. Uh, a person can, can say you're defending a person that, that uh, stole an ATM machine. And the, the defense gets up and says, oh, no, he was with his sister out in Omaha, and she was having dinner, and here's the receipts. And all. He would never do such a thing. He loves his mother and his grandmother. You don't care what she says because at the end you're going to show a video of the security camera of him walking, driving up to the ATM, putting a chain around it. You'll see his face as he puts it over the, the camera. You'll see his fingerprints as he pushes the button. And that truth will overcome the error such that what is the solution? The solution is in order to advance error, you must prevent the presentation of truth, because truth overcomes error. That's why you can have liberals all over the place, but you can't have one conservative speak on college campus. You can't have one conservative professor. Why? Because the truth overcomes the, the error. Now, as, as Charlie said, when he goes on a college campus to talk about free enterprise against socialism, all of these mind-numb robots come out there and start chanting and screaming and yelling. Until, and as he proceeds on, he said, eventually they tend to come around and start to ask him questions at the end. He said, nobody ever told us that. I didn't realize that. I've never heard that. So the, the dilemma that we have with the young people today is that there are colleges of education, not by accident, by the way, have programmed these dear young teachers that want to help and care. They know nothing about free enterprise, why America's wealthy, how, how uh, economics works. And so they, they, they preach all this stuff, and so we have a whole generation of people that will follow after anything. And, and, and yet socialism has never, ever worked once. The richest nation south of the Rio Grande just 10 years ago was Venezuela. It's now the fourth poorest in the entire hemisphere. Socialism can make any rich place poor. Freedom, look at South Korea, look at Hong Kong, freedom can make any poor place rich. President Trump has called the fake news the enemy of the people. And we've actually seen this play out very recently at the March for Life when the Covington Catholic students were unfairly maligned by so many in the press and on social media. I want to ask you about the media's role in their responsibility for polarizing us in the way that we seem to be today? And do you think that there's any way to overcome some of these challenges that we're now seeing? Well, it, it, if I could just spin off of the idea that truth overcomes error, that's why they have to prevent the presentation of truth. You know, there, there's quite a bit of criticism from the left about, about uh, Fox News, the, the right-wing Fox. Fox News puts on everybody. But what Fox News does that other people don't, if you watch NBC, CBS, ABC, they don't put conservatives on. Why? Because truth overcomes error. Every left-wing crazy loony that you can come up with appears on Fox News. But he also has the truth beside it. It blows it away. So that's why they are so frightened, and that's why they have to prevent the presentation. And, and that's what the, the press has to constantly do. And how do you do it? The most effective way is by ridicule. And where is ridicule found? It is, it is found in rules for radicals. The, the media uses the principle from Saul Alinsky that to ridicule other folks to the point. Let's take an example. Good, decent, young teenage males are standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. They're being called every sorts of name, the byproduct of incest. They're called every vicious, vile name that, that, 
that words that we would never repeat in public, they're being chanted at. A fellow who is a professional agitator who calls himself, he, he looks about 20 years older than I do and he's 10 years younger, uh, going around saying that, that uh, he, he, he tries to incite people to say something nasty about him so that he can get his name in the paper. He goes over and starts beating a drum in front of this little teenager's face. He doesn't say or do anything. He is an angel. He is perfect. Those boys are, behave in a manner that, that any parent, could, any American should be proud of. And what did Savannah Guthrie and what did all these liberals do? They called him every name. I hope they get burned up. I hope that they get killed. I hope their parents get killed as well. And you begin to see the left. Why? Because the left is full of hate. They hate liberty. They hate freedom. They hate happiness. And then secondly, and, and uh, conclude with this, you can spot the people who also joined on the Never Trumpers, people that should know better. A person like Bishop Foy from North that uh, of which the Covington Catholic is in his is in his diocese immediately attacks them just as fully as anybody else. The things that that, that uh, Bill Crystal said, the things that, that the the National Review said, people that hate Trump also hated them, and they had not done a thing. So this is a battle. This is a spiritual battle between right and wrong, and uh, we need to. I, I quite frankly, I'm more optimistic than I was eight or ten or fifteen years ago, is because the reason that they're so vicious is because they know they're losing. Bob, thank you so much for that insight. So I first heard you speak uh, at the 2015 Forge Leadership Network Summit in Ohio, and Adam Josephic had told Adam, uh, had told Rob and I that he really appreciates uh, the stories and analogies from your book, Easiest Pie, uh, your book on politics. Can you share maybe one story or analogy in the book that you uh, th- that's your favorite? Well, no, I can't. Uh, but but I, I majored in economics, which, if you understand it, is fascinating and fun. And and I can explain it. I have a, a DVD that you can order. It's called Politics Easiest Pie, as you mentioned. Politics equals integrity plus economics. Those are the only two things that you vote on. P equals I plus E. You only, politics is only the integrity. Is a person a liar or a crook? Is he going to steal? If you're a liberal, you steal. You take things that don't belong to you. And economics. Those are the only two things that that you vote on. So I I established so that people could hear it and see it and understand it, but I never wrote a book. And uh, uh, three female lawyers, uh, delightful young women from California, got increasingly frustrated that I never wrote a book. And so what they did is they got the transcripts of some of my speeches and they excerpt them. They printed them. They chose the cover. They chose the title of the book and they mailed me a copy. And so that's 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 what uh, you can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> I have it up right here. But uh, the DVD, I think, is is really the best because it. Uh, but but the vignettes is just to understand. If you understand how it works, let me tell you: a teenager selling dope on the corners is Bedford Stuyvesant. He understands supply and demand. He understands his market. He understands markup. Uh, free uh, economics is not complicated. You have to go to college to to not understand. The only way you can you can be sold socialism is if you have. An expert try to convince you that it, that it's true because it has never ever worked. Bob, this was a fascinating conversation. We appreciate you joining the Daily Signal. The honor was mine. I thank you both. <laughs> and we will leave it there for today. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast, brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, and please leave us a review or rating on iTunes to give us feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow.